Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. The U.S. and Iran are inching closer to war. In the past week, there have been two separate flare-ups and tensions between the two countries, and when you look at them together, it paints a pretty grim picture. That's today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hi. What's up? All right. Alex, why don't, why don't you start talking about the first of these troubling flare-ups with the U.S. and Iran? So let's start on Sunday night with a statement from National Security Advisor John Bolton. What he put out was basically a warning to Iran saying that the United States had credible intelligence of threats to Americans in the region and that the U.S. would send an aircraft carrier and bombers to the Middle East to both deter an attack and respond quite effectively in case one happened. Uh, Now, this led to pretty widespread confusion, mainly like what were these threats, right? How credible really are they? And two, is this the right response, sending a, you know, aircraft carrier and bombers, which indicates that the threat would be quite big in order to respond that that massively. Yeah. So reporters start looking into this and figure out that, okay, there are these missile shipments, there are possible attacks that are being planned on U.S. troops and diplomats in Iraq and Syria, maybe a drone attack that could happen in a strait near Yemen. So, like, there's all of these little things that are threats out there that make sense They're like, oh, okay, that's what they must be responding to. And then Bolton says, yeah, so we're deploying an aircraft carrier group and bombers to deter these threats, essentially. Except there there are some buts here, right, right, that make the whole thing more confusing. First, it's possible that the aircraft carrier was already going to go there in the first place, that it was a pre-scheduled deployment that Bolton just hurried up, basically, to make it seem like he was responding to this thing. So that was confusing. But then perhaps more importantly— uh, there was a piece in the Daily Beast that argued that Bolton had dramatically inflated the intelligence on this, that the threats weren't nearly as serious as he made them out to be, and was using this as a pretext to escalate tensions with Iran, which he's a longtime advocate and openly and explicitly for starting a war with Iran. So it, this would be part of his plan personally to try to kick off a conflict. It would basically be like Iraq 2.0, just a little quieter instead of big trumpeting weapons of mass destruction you know, smaller escalations. So if you put it together, you have possibly inflated intelligence, which led to a harsh statement about a ship deployment that was in the works anyway, all to speak tough to Iran and send a really strong signal that was only going to make the tense situation between the U.S. and Iran even tenser. 
it's it's really great that some of the same people who are in the Bush administration, including John Bolton during that Iraq war run-up, are now running policy. It's really just that I feel very comfortable about this whole situation. Right. So that's where we were Sunday and the few days after. And then Wednesday happened. Wednesday was the year anniversary of the U.S. pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. So just a quick reminder, the Iran nuclear deal lifted sanctions off of Iran in exchange for limits to its nuclear program. So it would put these limits on things like enriching uranium, building nuclear sites, things like that. And the U.S. and the European countries who are also in the deal would lift sanctions and try to basically say, look, we'll help your economy grow in return for this. Which then meant when we withdrew from the deal that the U.S. reimposed pretty tough sanctions on Iran, on its oil sector, on its banking sector. This has now led to quite a depression in the country with uh, millions already suffering under just the, the, the Iranian regime's rule now dealing with economic hardships. And it's put a lot of countries that have stayed in the deal, you know, specifically like France, the UK, Germany, and to a certain extent Russia and China, in, in a pretty tough spot. Because if they do business now with Iran, particularly in those sectors that have been sanctioned, then the U.S. has effectively said we will sanction and, and like stop kind of doing business with you guys too. The, the main goal very clearly here is to crash Iran's economy and, and very explicitly to bring Iran's oil exports down to zero. So this is part of a U.S. maximum pressure campaign. Right. So what is the point from Iran's point of view of staying in the deal? And the answer right now appears to be there is no point because on Wednesday, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani announced two moves that would basically pull Iran out of the agreement if they're followed through on. First, it would continue to stockpile low-enriched uranium and heavy water. It's supposed to export extra of these materials. Uh, and these could be used to build a nuclear bomb under the agreement. And second, he set up an ultimatum. If in 60 days, the Europeans don't start dealing with Iran economically in violation of these U.S. sanctions Alex was just talking about, Iran will start enriching uranium at high levels again. And these higher levels are the ones that can directly be used to build a bomb right. without getting too technical here. Yeah, just to be clear, these two measures themselves don't necessarily in any way put them closer to actually getting a bomb any faster than they could now. Like, they are problematic that could lead to eventually a bomb down the road. But they're not, like, these two things themselves don't mean they're getting a bomb. Don't make a bomb. No, right. Exactly. It's, it's, it's not a rush to a bomb. Yeah. It, right. is, it is saying there's no point in us abiding by this deal exactly. that prevents us from building one, and so we're just going to start violating some of its terms unless we get what we got on our end, which I'm not a fan of the horrific Iranian dictatorship, which is functionally is, despite the veneers of democracy. But the U.S. screwed them over here. I, it doesn't make any sense from their point of view to continue to abide by the terms of the agreement when the Trump administration just abrogated its side and put pressure on everybody else to pull out too. And it's actually a pretty minimal response to a maximum pressure, right? I mean, this is quite measured to say, like, we're going to stockpile a couple more things. We're giving you guys extra time to make a deal with us. So... It could have been a lot worse. But what makes it so scary is when we add it to the standoff we talked about earlier, right? What would happen here normally is that cooler heads would prevail. Yes, there's a there's a standoff between the U.S. and Iran, and now Iran has made this provocative move. And you can imagine this escalating. So here's where someone is supposed to come in and go, guys, let's figure things out. The problem is I just don't see anybody on either the U.S. or the Iranian side really willing to do that, right? On the U.S. end, the goal, again, is to to crash Iran, to to ruin it, to effectively change the regime. And on the Iranian side, they have really no incentive to stay in the deal, which could put them on the path towards a nuclear weapon, which is specifically what the Trump administration doesn't want to see happen. So I'm worried that there's just no off-ramps here, and this could only get worse. 
Yeah, I, I don't agree with that. I mean, I, I see that. I see your point. I don't think that's a, a bad analysis. I just have a little bit more hope. Maybe call me Pollyanna here. But first of all, when we talk about, you know, this U.S. maximum pressure campaign, the point of the campaign, yes, could be to crash Iran's economy and basically change the regime. I think there are a lot of people in the U.S. administration who would like that as an outcome. But there's also a much more like tangible and potentially realistic goal, which is to bring them to the table and to try to negotiate a deal that is better than the Iran nuclear deal, right? So the entire argument against the Iran nuclear deal, the good faith argument, against the Iran nuclear deal, besides just like Trump doesn't like Obama and doesn't like a stupid deal. The good faith argument is that it didn't account for all of Iran's other, what people tend to call malign activities in the region. So sponsoring terrorist groups across the Middle East, sponsoring terrorist groups in Bahrain, attacks against U.S. assets in the region, militia attacks in Iraq and Syria, right? So the idea was, look, this deal only dealt specifically with the nuclear program. So it doesn't actually stop them from doing all this other shit, right, that we also really don't want Iran to keep doing. So the good faith argument is that, look, we're going to put pressure on them. We're going to put pressure on them like like they've never seen before, and they're going to have to come back to the table. And now we're going to get a deal that will actually address all of those things. Now, that may be completely unrealistic, but it is possible that that is what the goal is. And I think you've seen specifically some people in the administration say that explicitly. Yeah, look, I'd uh, I admire how uh, how much generosity you're able to extend to the Trump administration, but I, I, I don't have that that level of uh, empathy, I think, with their goals here. Empathy might not be the right word, but look, I think there are two problems, right? First is that the Iranians are not going to want to cave on the nuclear deal at this point, right? There's not significant pressure. There wasn't before, right? They, at, at In the best case, from Trump's point of view, we get back to the pre-Iran deal levels of sanctions that were hurting Iran's economy, but not enough to cause it to cave any more than it already did on the nuclear deal with Obama. It's hard to imagine the Iranians being like, oh, you broke your word to us? We're going to give you everything that you want as a result of that. And second, this isn't a good faith exercise, right? But the people at the top, the leadership class, both John Bolton and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, have suggested that they want a war with Iran pretty openly in the past. The president, he really does just hate Obama's deal. He said, what they should be doing is calling me up, sitting down. We can make a deal, a fair deal. We just don't want them to have nuclear weapons. Not too much to ask. And we would help put them back into great shape. They're in bad shape right now. That's what the Iran nuclear deal did, right? Right. If that's all you want, it's not the other stuff, Jen, that you're talking about. It's 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 just the nuclear deal that he pulled out of entirely out of spite because it was Obama's deal. So there's no strategic thinking going on here. There's no secretary of defense like Mattis in the past who, in theory, could have been a break on this. So you've got the two leading foreign policymakers as uber hawks, and then you have the president who has no idea what he wants. It's It's a very scary situation to me. And where I'm scared of the situation, I'm also just genuinely depressed in the sense that, like, this was so avoidable. Right. This is a crisis really of Trump's making more than anything. Like I'm not this is I'm not necessarily defending the Iranians here. They've done some bad stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair, like yeah. the reason you have to have an Iran deal in the first place is because Iran is fucking building nuclear weapons. Of course. So they they don't get a pass here. Of of course, but Trump didn't have to leave it, right? So like this was a predictable outcome. We expected something like this to happen. That right. if we start to put this pressure on Iran, then Iran would try to do stuff like this. And Mixed with the people who are in the in the Trump administration, it's just very clear that, like, this was part of the design and it just didn't have to be. 
We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about a very revealing election in Turkey. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? Smartwater Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smartwater Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? Smartwater Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smartwater Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Welcome back. For elsewhere, we're not going far from Iran. We're just over to Turkey, where the country's latest move towards outright authoritarianism, the annulment of a mayoral election in Istanbul, its largest city, is being met with a pretty robust backlash. But look, let's start by talking about Turkey's president-slash-quasi-dictator, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Jen, he's not exactly the best guy. Yeah, so Erdogan has been uh, the leader of the country for many years now in the top office. I say top office because he was prime minister and president back and forth. He's kind of changed the constitution so that whatever position he holds is the one that is the most important. But in his years in power, he has suppressed protests. He has taken control of the media. Uh, he has persecuted minorities. He's been doing that for years, particularly the Kurdish minority. He's also imprisoned and rounded up like, literally thousands of people who disagree with him or that he blames for being behind this attempted coup a few years back. So we're talking everyone from, you know, teachers, lawyers, <laughs> journalists, shopkeepers, like literally anyone, people in his own military. He's basically taken a page out of this illiberal playbook to turn what was a growing democracy into something very different. So to give you a sense of just how bad this crackdown is, according to Amnesty International, Turkey is the world's largest jailer of journalists, the largest in the world, and Turkey's supposed to be a democracy. So that that will give you a sense of just how dictatorial this guy is. So with that important background, we go to elections that happened this past March, and they were nationwide, but they were really about local elections, right? Mayors, races, sort of district representatives, that kind of stuff. And the big prize here uh, was the mayor race for Istanbul. the Not the capital, but by far, you know, Turkey's biggest city and the economic engine, uh, which with a, like a budget that's bigger than some European countries. It's the New York of Turkey. And what happened was that Erdogan's party lost. It was a razor thin margin, but the candidate from the opposite party won the election and then became Istanbul's mayor. That was seen as a massive rebuke to a certain extent of Erdogan, uh, of his own party and in his in his leadership. And let's just put it this way. Erdogan was not happy about the result. And just so we're clear about, like, why this matters, this isn't just some mayoral race. It's Istanbul. And Erdogan has said many times, he who wins Istanbul wins Turkey. So he really sees this as, like, really important to his control over the whole country to have his guy, his party win. And then he didn't. 
Right. And he came up as mayor of Istanbul. It's the first time that the opposition party had won the mayorship in 25 years. It seems like a local election, but for the governing party and for Erdogan personally, it's a gigantic deal. Yeah, so, it's a direct threat to his control on power, basically. So instead of conceding, which, you know, you would normally do if you were a democracy, of course he fucking didn't. Erdogan basically invented irregularities in the election. He said there was illegality. His statement was kind of confusing, but basically he's saying they cheated and that they need to redo the vote. He's essentially just trying to overturn the results of this election because he didn't like the outcome. It, it's it's crying fake news, fake news uh, about about the results of this election, basically. And the local election board goes along with him, and they set new election dates for June. And now everyone's furious, who obviously wanted their votes to count and now have been annulled by the government. What does that look like? Are people protesting? Oh, yeah. So they're going through the time-honored Turkish tradition of using pots and pans and banging them furiously. It's meant very clearly as a, as a rebuke and a signal and a noisy one. Um, Highly underrated tactic that we don't use in the United States. We need we more pots and pans banging. Pots and pans banging. I strongly agree. Very yeah. effective. It is the official worldly position there should be more pots and pan banging in the United States. Um, uh, and so it's interesting is there these people are protesting in the streets with the pots and pans, but they're also doing it from their own homes. So, so the sound you're hearing right now is from a video that's taken from a sort of aerial view of Istanbul. And you can hear all of this banging from pots and pans, and you can see lights in people's apartments flicking in and out. That way they can demonstrate a level of anger and protest without having to go out onto the street and potentially be violently broken up by the government, but just to show and to signal to everybody else that there is anger, there is dissent, and if you are frustrated with this, you're not alone, and you can be joined by your fellow citizens in protest. It's quite moving, actually, um, and and I think it does one thing. It shows, you know, we talk a lot about Erdogan's power and, and, and his dictatorial leanings. It goes to show that there genuinely is like a resistance movement, and there clearly is a, a, a group of people in Turkey that are unhappy, not only with him or his party, but just kind of the direction that Turkey is going. Or even in. that, like, there's only so far you can go before right. we're like, you know what, that's bullshit. And it's worth pointing out that, like, to this point, Erdogan has done a lot of undemocratic things turning the media to bend towards his will, putting his own loyalists in high positions of power. But now with this play, he really seems to have crossed a line, kind of turning an independent body of elections to do what he wants. Very clearly, and it's worth pointing out, that like the same ballots where they voted for the mayor, like they also voted for district representatives, his party won those elections, right? But like those are fine. Right. Those don't have irregularities. It's the mayor one that does. And so like it's very clear that he's kind of gone a step beyond what he's normally done. Yeah, and you actually have leading figures in the country. So it's not just people, you know, in their homes, but like even some Erdogan allies, people in his own party have condemned his move saying it's undemocratic. So he clearly crossed a line and people are not happy. In big picture, right, Turkey is the poster child for what's called democratic backsliding, for a country that used to be a well-regarded democracy reverting to authoritarianism and developing a kind of system in which it appears to be democratic, but by manipulating the media and changing uh, the way that elections are conducted, it's really impossible for the leader to rule and consolidating power in the leader's own hands. Right? Hungary is another really good example of this. Venezuela prior to the current crisis was a similar one. Uh but the, there's a delicate balance in countries like this where you need to 
provide plausible deniability about being undemocratic by making it still seem like you're a democracy in order to satisfy the many citizens who feel like it's important to them to live in a democracy. Erdogan just hit the wrong side of that line, right? He was too overtly authoritarian in this case, as Alex was just alluding to, and that has inspired a mass backlash. I don't know if he'll be able to rig the mayoral election. He might lose again, in which case I have no idea what he does. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of different factors that could determine whether he loses again, or maybe he does rig it, and then the veneer's off. And then it's just straight-up authoritarianism. But we're, we're, we're having an interesting test right now of how these systems respond when the fragile balance between seeming democratic and actually not being ends up becoming snapped. I think there's also a big point here that is really worth explaining, that when things are going really well in your country and your leader is doing things that are maybe not super democratic— there are a lot of people who will just kind of not really care, right? And maybe, yeah, I would care about that, but like, eh, the economy is going well. The economy is going really, really badly in Turkey. Things are going really, really badly. So when you pair that with someone who is doing things that are clearly overtly authoritarian, now all of a sudden it's not, oh, I can look the other way because things are going great and I have a job and, you know, my kids have great schools. It's, okay, you know what? Fuck this guy because I, I don't like the way he's ruling. We're not doing great. And now he's just taking shit over the person I voted for because I thought they might actually help my life get better, he's now trying to not, you know, allow take, to take office. That's when you really see this line being crossed. Cue the pots and pans. Well, right. And so the hopeful reading of this is that, that this is the beginning of a long-deserved crisis for Erdogan's authoritarian rule. The depressing one is he's going to rig another election and he's going to get away with it. And that's where we'll leave you. Uh, I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton. I want to encourage all of you to rate and subscribe and review to Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bye. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com.